Hello and welcome to Switzer Investing. I'm Peter Switzer. Thanks for joining me. On the program tonight, I want to focus on the war and how you should invest on the basis of could it be over quicker than we expect or if it drags on, how should you invest? My first guest is Brenton Saunders, who's the portfolio manager of the Pendor Midcap Strategy Fund. I asked him about how he's playing the war, uh, what kind of investments uh, is, is he thinking about because of it? Uh, and I also get him to take us through the, the good value mid-cap stocks that he's added to his fund and some really interesting companies. Um, looking at companies from about 50 to 150 in the ASX 200. He gives us a few really interesting ideas. And then Marcus Bogdan of the Switzer Dividend Growth Fund and Blackmore Capital, he looks at how he's playing the war and the stocks he's recently added or taken away from the fund. And then Dr. Shane Gahar, uh, now he's a, an expert on urban planning. I've got him talking about the future of CBDs and then I do a bit of analysis on REITs, real estate investment trusts, particularly those focused on offices in the CBDs. Are they stocks that you should sell or are they potentially good value? I look at what the analysts are actually saying about some of the big name companies in the REIT space. That's a show. Let's kick off now with Brenton Saunders from Pendle. After a market crashes, we tend to find that value stocks do really well compared to growth stocks. And a lot of value stocks are mid-cap stocks. That's why I'm interested in talking to Brenton Saunders, who is the portfolio manager of the Pendle Mid-Cap Strategy. He joins me on the program. Thanks, Brendan, for coming on the show. Thank you, Peter. Nice to see you. All right, mate. So tell us, um, tell us about the strategy for this fund. Uh, Peter, this, uh, the strategy for this fund is really to take advantage of companies that are really in the sweet spot of their development. So they have sufficient maturity to be able to generally pay dividends, have established and self-funded capital structures, but still have a high focus in terms of their business model. So they're not too diversified or, or spread around. Um, and they also still have a reasonable level of growth. Um, we look for you know companies in good market segments with good management teams and um you know a good story uh, somewhere where we think we can identify some kind of information edge where we think the market is uh, not taking uh, into consideration uh, how this how the story will play out how many companies would you have in the fund on average uh, we typically have somewhere between um, 40 and 60. That's sort of what we target. I think we have about 49 at the moment. Um, so, and, and that compares to our investment universe, um, which is 100. Hmm. So the investment universe um, is from the, 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 in the ASX 200, it's from the 50th biggest company to the 150th biggest um, company. So that's largely the size of company that we invest in. And if you looked at that broadly in market cap terms, that's from in very round numbers around a billion to around as much as eight or nine billion. Yeah. And do you, do you actually search for, um, 
a preferred diversification ratio between sectors or is it purely driven by how many really good companies that you can find? I mean, it's a difficult balance. We are a core manager, so we, we don't really have a, a star bias. We, we typically will go anywhere. Hmm. Um, the nature of the benchmark in that 50 to 150 has a very wide diversification mm. across um, industry segments. So it's quite unique in that regard. It's not overpowered by, uh, like, so like the um, the uh, ASX 200 would be um, with a very heavy weighting in uh, large large banks and um, resource stocks. It has a much more balanced um, uh, investment universe, and we typically uh, we typically have um, a fairly diversified um, portfolio we try and we try and find the best stocks in their respective um, industry segments mm. um, it is opportunity driven uh, to some some extent in terms of uh, the number of really good companies we can find and that's typically why we limit ourselves to um, somewhere around half the number of stocks um, compared to our, our mm. benchmark um, but we we tend to keep it fairly well balanced yeah. um, across across industry sectors. And, and I, I presume you you end up getting some pretty good quality tech companies that really haven't made it like the afterpays that end up being in the the, the top uh, ASX hundred even the top ASX twenty at one stage I think it got to. But um, so you do actually get a, a quite a range of good quality tech stocks in there as well. I presume. Yes, you do. And, um, you know, that's the one part of our universe that, um, you know, is still characterized by fairly, um, fairly developmental companies. Some of them are still reliant on external sources of capital. They're not, uh, they're not, not self-sustaining because they're such high, high growth enterprises. And we, we find that not just in the tech space, but in some of the, um, uh, the EV um, space as well. Mm. There, there are similar kinds of companies that trade on similarly very high multiples or mostly developmental concept stocks in large part, but we, we do. Um, uh, you, you mentioned Afterpay. Afterpay came in into and out of our universe in fairly short order mm. as it rallied through the, um, the COVID stimulus um, period. But, you know, stocks like um, NextEC, um, YSEC um, and the like, uh, they all form part of that universe and they're all very, uh, pretty much as tech as you can get. Yeah. So you've got an interesting conundrum now, I would have thought, because I, I think they're good quality companies, but at the moment the, the market is sort of has re-rotated uh, out and have a pretty negative view. But when people ask me, I think, well, a lot of these companies are going to be great companies in two or three years' time, but it might take a year or so before they come through. How do you how do you juggle like that kind of view and the fact that you have to produce results? Yeah, uh, look, there's 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 two parts to that, right? So there's uh, the first part is is it a good company? Is it in a good market segment? Is is the market structure um, uh, a good one? Is the management team uh, a good one? And is the opportunity set ahead of them? And a, a lot of those big big tech companies in in our investment universe tick most of those boxes. Mm. Um, one of the boxes they're not ticking, ticking at the moment um, is, is really just valuation. The, the rise and the prospective rise in, um, in risk-free rates and interest rates is really the biggest headwind for a lot of highly valued stocks like those stocks. So 
you know, th th there are some tech stocks that we um, are less uh, less um, disposed to just by virtue of either the market segment they find themselves in, the management, or you know their their opportunity set generally. But you know, there are a lot of really good companies with uh, with good opportunities in front of them. Um, the biggest headwind is really just from a valuation perspective. Um, most of the highly, uh, most of the high multiple stocks are finding it um, fairly difficult um, in this current environment mm. with the prospect of rising interest mm. rates. Uh, how are you treating the the big headwind coming out of Russia and Vladimir Putin at the moment? Are you seeing it as a buying opportunity on the basis that eventually some kind of solution will come out? And as we saw overnight, um, you know, one one whiff of of something good, and bang, the market goes up. How are you treating the the the, the Russian-Ukraine war? Very carefully, Peter. Um, we're not necessarily convinced that you know th this is really. Uh, we we think it's probably too early to be bottom picking mm. any kind of. Um, Sort of market bottom based on what is going on specifically, not not only not only in, in the Ukraine, but as far as the uh, interest rate backdrop and mm. inflation is concerned. So we are maintaining fairly defensive uh, portfolios that are populated by you know some of the the best quality and um, lowest valuation stocks um, in our space at the moment, and. Um, we are trying um, our level best to stay on top of developments um, in the Ukraine and just to try and have the most educated um, view on um, how that might play out and, and ultimately uh, when that will give the market confidence mm -hmm. to, to find a level and um, unwind some of these um, anomalies that have been priced into the likes of commodities and then, then obviously um, some of the stocks that are more specifically impacted by by the events do you do you have like a a two road view on the stocks you hold ones that you think you'll make money well in the short term and others you're prepared to bank on that they will be great performers down the track yeah i mean um the, the stocks that the stocks that we really like at the moment, um, and and some of our bigger bigger and better holdings are companies like um, Metcash, uh, Nine Entertainment, um, Downer, um, Tabcorp. Um, th th those are some of our bigger and, and um, more higher conviction holdings. Mm. Each and every one of them are for slight, slightly different reasons, but you'll find that the common thread amongst them is. Most of them are reasonably valued. Um, most of them have a fairly good cyclical backdrop and um, they're relatively well positioned for an environment in which we have rising inflation and rising um, interest rates. We're not a macrothematic in um, investment house. We, we try and diversify as much of that risk out of our portfolios as we can, but we're very cognizant of whatever um, cyclical drivers that are helping or hurting a specific stock or, or sector. Mm. But before, even before the, the, the Ukraine-Russian uh, um, conflict, uh, I was arguing probably at the end of last year that I thought the Australian stock market had an opportunity to do well compared to the US market because the US market 
had ripped, you know, if you compare where it was before the pandemic, it was up about 38% and we were up about 4%. And but across their tech stocks, the FANGs and Microsoft really drove that up. And I just figured that, you know, cyclically the miners would do well, financials would do well, and, and energy probably had a, a, a benefit from the fact that a global recovery was coming. Financials have clearly suffered because of the Ukraine, what, what in the hell is going on with banks situation. If, if we get past the Ukraine thing, do you think those, those three themes will still be um, uh, work in our favour with a global recovery coming out of Omicron and coronavirus? Yeah, I think so. I think once the mist clears and we get back onto investing around some of the sort of more macro, the traditional macro dynamics outside of geopolitics, you know, that, that at this stage of the, of the economic cycle is typically highly favorable for specifically the banking stocks, mm. um, possibly less so some of the diversified financials, but certainly banking uh, looks quite good. And then, I mean, I think the one thing that we think that will continue to be um, well positioned post, you know, the resolution stabilization, um, hopefully of, of the Ukraine is, is just ongoing disruptions in commodity markets. Um, the, there's likely to, that is likely to keep um, commodity prices, energy prices at above trend levels. Mm. Um, that should help, you know, Australia um, as a geography, mm. and um, you know we are uh, we're 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 lucky to be endowed with a lot of very good companies in those in those spaces. Mm. Um, so I, I think that will continue to favour us. Um, you know, depending on the extent or or eventuality of any kind of additional stimulus that may or may not come out of um, specifically in Europe. Um, the, the the Ukraine war, um, we might we might well see some of the the, the tech stocks um, find their feet again and start doing well again. But we do think that you know that that's a space that just from a rating perspective is going to continue a battle with um, interest rates and inflation for some time. Yeah. I, I often argue that um, the interest rate story is, is hard for tech stocks, but eventually some fund managers who will make so much money in other sectors will, will look at tech stocks and say, gee, I, I, I better take some profit and start picking up some of these tech stocks for the future. Is that a, a pretty rational approach, do you think, that many fund managers will eventually have? Yeah, I think they will. And, uh, and I think there's good reason. You know, there's a good price for everything. Um, you, you know, if you're buying a good, good car, uh, the quality of the product is one consideration and then the price is the other consideration. And tech stocks are exactly the same. And like I say, a lot of these tech stocks still have fairly good business opportunities in mm. front of them. Um, you know, their business segments are growing. The adoption of the technologies that they're offering is growing. Um, and, and so the primary headwind that they're facing is not so much a deterioration in the in the business landscape that they're addressing it's it's principally just a um, evaluation thing to do with the increase in in, in risk-free rates so there will there will come a time um, depending on you know how, how how much more if any the market um, declines over the course of the, the Ukraine war there will be there will come a time when these stocks on their own merits and given the fact that they offer much higher growth rates 
um, will look attractive again. And I think that's the one, it's a, it's it's different to say the tech wreck or even the financial crisis. We haven't seen a material deterioration in the business landscapes for a lot of tech stocks. In mm. fact, um, a lot of them, a lot of the, the business landscapes continue to accelerate. Mm. And that's the one big difference. Uh, their primary headwind is, is really valuation now, which is, you know, we'll, we'll find a, we'll find the appropriate price at some stage and, um, and then start attracting investment attention again. Okay. All my questions so far have been really easy, Brenton, but uh, one last <laughs> one. If, if a beloved family or friend, friend came to you and said, give me one stock that you really think looks like good value to hold for a year or two, what would that stock be? Medcash. Okay. You, you, you know, in, in the consumer consumer staples area, we we like it for a couple of reasons. One, it trades at about fifty to sixty percent of the valuation of something like uh, Woolworths. It's um, it's benefiting from a change in consumer behaviour that has seen uh, more and more of us spend at least part of our working weeks um, from home. Uh, it has a much higher suburban and regional. Um, presence than uh, the other consumer discretionaries, um, and that's just in its um, that that's just in the, the grocery and, and retail area. The, the the other really exciting part of of Metcash is is really their hardware business. Their hardware business is now almost half of that business. Mm. It's benefiting mm. from a combination of both organic and acquisitive growth. Uh, there are a lot of uh, synergies still to be realised. Um, as a result of the integration of, of some of these businesses, um, you know, giving them access to some of the, the broader scale systems and distribution that um, a business like uh, uh, Metcash offers. And then you can get it on a, a 6% dividend yield and at um, 40 or 50% of the valuation of Woolworths at the same time. So, you know, we, we just think it has so much going for it. It's it's got valuation, it's got tailwinds, it's got pricing power associated with um, inflation and it, and it pays a good yield. Well, I know when I picked my granddaughter up from swimming yesterday, the first thing she said was she wants to go to the IGA. <laughs> Metcash <That's> clearly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Breton, thanks for coming on the program. Peter, thank you for your time. Cheers. That's Breton Saunders from the Pendle Midcap Strategy. I'm joined now by Marcus Bogdan, who's the fund manager of the Switzer Dividend Growth Fund and also is the founder of Blackmore Capital. And we're going to see how he's playing the, the market with all this worries around the war, uh, rising oil and commodity prices, and just to see how he's reacting, particularly given the fact that the German stock market was up nearly 8% overnight, clearly on better news than what has been prevailing in recent times. Marcus, thanks for joining us. Good morning, Peter. Good to be here. Have you um, dealt with many uh, wars in your investing lifetime? Uh, there've been an, a number of different crises uh, since the uh, since the beginning of the of the 2000s, uh, but this is obviously significant, mm. uh, and it's also significant for what you're alluding to 
uh, is the impact that that's having on a range of commodities around around the world, and that's particularly relevant to the Australian market, uh, where we're uh, a resource and energy rich country. Yeah. Well, I, I made a note in my my story today that you know. Um, uh, the German market, I think, was down about 12 or 13 percent um, before the big rise overnight. Uh, we were down about 3 percent, and part, part of the reason is that we, we actually have a lot of the stocks that have been doing well, energy stocks, resource stocks, and, uh, and for a while, financials were doing well, but financials weren't helped by the, the concerns over well, what banks might be affected by Russia or, U, or the Ukraine. So, so we were a beneficiary uh, of um, the war in a sense, but what's happening today and what do you expect to happen if this war problem starts to dissipate? Well, I think that the focus will then go more squarely back uh, uh, to the direction of interest rates uh, and how these global economies are, are facing into continued elevated inflation. Uh, that is a problem problematic that the markets have to have to solve. Uh, but underlying that is that there's underlying strength in the broader economy and that is leading uh, to better than expected earnings results both from a profit and a, and a dividend perspective and so you know we're fundamentally focused on the fundamentals of the underlying companies that we've got investments in yeah so in many ways what what we're seeing then is uh, if, if for example the 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 war in the ukraine uh, starts to become less of an issue. And we saw overnight two things happen. One is OPEC decided to effectively take sides, increase production mm -hmm. of oil, and that's driven oil price down. Good for the global economy, give our global economy a tick. Mm -hmm. And then we also saw the possibility that Ukraine could be saying to themselves, well, we might make ourselves a neutral country. That might get Putin off our back. That might then mm -hmm. take away the threat of war. Uh, and all those things have really helped the market um, go up mm -hmm. today. So if over time then that is the situation, the war actually starts becoming less of an issue, then we focus on a rebounding global economy, which you've alluded to, which helps companies' profits, and then mm -hmm. because the new worry will be interest rates and inflation. But mm -hmm. in that context, is that, do you think that's overall a win for stocks over 2022? I think if you can negate uh, the negativity that we've had on, and we go back to the other issue is the pandemic and COVID, mm. hopefully that's now starting to dissipate. Uh, the second issue was obviously around the war in, in Ukraine. Uh, and the third issue is, is around inflation. So if two out of those three issues uh, can take a step a step back, and then we still have to navigate our way through uh, these higher persistent inflationary pressures. Now, one of the things that you're alluding to, obviously, if there is greater supply in ter terms of oil, that some of the issues around uh, the energy crisis dissipate, well, that will take some pressure off inflation 
as 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 well. Mm. Uh, and then the focus will be well, how are uh, the global economies navigating uh, through the remainder of 2022? Okay, so what are you seeing in your collection of funds in your in your uh, stock, stocks you've got in your fund? What are you seeing at the moment? Well, we've seen absolutely an elevated performance on the materials and the resources sector. I'm not just talking um, I'm talking over the last month, month or so. So very strong performances in companies like BHP, which are you know a significant part of the portfolio of just around 10 percent or so. Uh, so they've delivered very strong results. Companies such as Santos and Northern Star, for the first time in several years, we're starting to see some outperformance on the gold on the gold sector. Now, if what you're saying are uh, those issues start to dilute some, somewhat, uh, then I think you'll see the other parts of the portfolio. Uh, start to recover nicely. Uh, today, for example, we're seeing a strong return in the performance of the financials. Macquarie is well up, and then companies like Commonwealth Bank um, and National Australia Bank are also very strong performers as well. Mm. So, let's, uh, have there been any new additions to the fund? Have you, or have you kicked any any stock out of the fund? Yes, we have made um, a change in the last week. Uh, we have sold uh, Ampol, uh, which has been an outperformer over the last year uh, by a cons considerable amount. Uh, and we do think that, that, that energy prices will remain elevated uh, and that that could have an impact on the level of demand uh, for refined products. And so we're happy to stay long uh, the, the sort of the upstream assets of, of BHP and, and Santos that are beneficiaries of, of these high, higher prices. And also we're looking to increase the dividend yield in the portfolio. And so we've acquired a, a toll road operator called Atlas Arteria, which used to be part of the Macquarie Group. Yeah. Uh, and Atlas Arteria um, own and operate and develop uh, four toll, toll roads uh, in France, Germany and the US. Uh, and pleasingly, they provide a dividend yield of greater than 6%. Mm. Uh, so that's been the addition into the portfolio. Uh, and the third adjustment that we've made is that we've got an investment in integral diagnostics, uh, which is a radiology and diagnostic group in Australia. Uh, they are having a rights issue. We're participating in that rights issue because we do believe that one of the, the beneficiaries as the, the influence of COVID recedes uh, is a recover a recovery in in healthcare and uh, and particularly in healthcare stocks. And it's part part of the reason why you hold CSL in the portfolio as well, I presume. Yes, CSL, Ramsey, uh, Integral, and, and, and Helios. So we're well represented in the portfolio because we do believe that this is a very strong long term theme that we're that we're playing. All right, Marcus. Thanks for joining us. Talk to you in a few weeks' time. Pleasure. Thanks, Peter. That's Marcus Bogdan of Blackmore Capital.
Well, I regularly get questions, something like this, are REITs exposed to the office box in the CBDs of Australian cities under threat, with workers all wanting to work from home? Or, I ask myself the question, are these the classic cases of what Warren Buffett would say, are stocks to be greedy because others are fearful and scared to buy them? So that's what I'll look at today about REITs. I've looked at four well-known REITs and I will look at them after this interview with Dr. Shane Gehare, who's an urban planning expert of EG Advisory. So, Welcome to the program, Shane. Uh, thank you, Peter. Uh, I understand that uh, this morning we're exploring the post-COVID CBD situation. Yeah, and exactly it's, it's right. And you have a pretty strong view on the matter. I do. It's obviously something we've all had a, a, a long think about, Peter because the, the reality is that we are all worried about what the post-pandemic CBD office environment world will look like, both from an institutional point of view in terms of owning assets, but also from the point of view of how much space, which, uh, which we're all renting in the city, of course, and how much space do we need? How much does it cost? Is it a sustainable outcome? What sort of things should we be thinking about in terms of work from home versus uh, work from the office. Yeah, okay. Let, let, and, let, uh, let me just, for people who are listening, explain to people what your background is. Well, I studied uh, civil engineering initially and then land economics, and then I did a PhD in town planning. So my expertise um, straddles both construction and the zoning of land. And uh, today, EG is a multi-dimensional company. EG is the company I founded with Michael Eason and Adam Gahar 22 years ago. And we basically have a very large investment arm, uh, which basically centers on the value add space. And uh, we still run a very large advisory practice in the difficult zoning and, and planning space, which probably is one of the largest of its kind in the country. Uh, and we also have a, a large prop tech business called Willow, which is centered around the, the digital twin technology. So uh, our understanding of property and land, I think, would be pretty diverse. Okay, right. So you're coming, you're coming from the point of view of what is to happen to the value and the use of properties in the CBD and you have a, a proposition that there should be more effort made to make or to encourage employees to come back to the workplace. What are the main arguments for that? Well, the way I've seen it du during the pandemic, Peter, is that uh, problem solving almost went out of the window when people were not in the one room together. I thought morale and team spirit were severely affected. I mean, for a day or two or three or a week or two, you can sustain having people in disparate places talking on a screen. But the reality that we have witnessed and that I've experienced personally over the last two years is that it's not too good for team morale. You don't actually feel like an organisation. You really feel like just talented individuals in different places. Also, I think the discipline of coming to an office is quite important. They're getting up in the morning. It's almost like a Pavlov dog experiment item, if, if you recall what that was. Mm. 
Um, Pavlov uh, basically found that if, uh, and he won the Nobel Prize for science for it. And uh, the, the experiment that he did was that if you actually conditioned the dogs to have a bell when they ate, then eventually he would just sound the bell and the dogs would salivate even without food being there. Mm. So, and every single organism on the planet has a conditioned reflex. So part of me being dressed up this morning for work is a significant factor in, in alerting my brain to the fact that uh, I am going to work. I'm going to concentrate on work. I have the discipline uh, mentally and physically of work. Now, that's not to say that some flexibility is not able to be done. And I think what the pandemic has taught us is that there's a lot of things now that are set up at home that can be done remotely, particularly for specific tasks. So if I had an employee or a manager that had a 14-hour task to do, sometimes it could be better for them. It could be worse, by the way, but sometimes it could be better for them to be concentrating alone at home outside of a work environment. But in terms of team morale, in terms of building the spirit of the company, in terms of the ethos of the firm, in terms of that discipline of coming to work, and in terms of problem solving, which almost goes out of the window when we're not together in one room, I think it's essential to encourage people to come back to the team environment in the office. Yeah. Are you seeing the, the comeback of workers in the office five days a week as a distinct possibility or do you think the hybrid model is more likely to prevail in the years going forward? Well, we've espoused the hybrid model enormously in the last two years and we've had good reason to do that. We've, we've had a pandemic, uh, we've reacted to it in a very universal way across the globe, rightly or wrongly. Uh, it's been a, you, you would agree, everyone would agree that it's been almost a unilateral reaction across the, across the globe. So, so our reality is that a lot of people are now used to not coming in on one or two or three days a week. Whether that is sustainable in the long term, I'm not sure. A lot of companies are saying they would like to offer flexibility and that's an important thing. Yeah, but remember, Peter, flexibility is not a KPI. Flexibility is a subset to a KPI. Mm -hmm. Flexibility is me making my employees happy enough to produce more. That's yeah. all it is. So if at the end of the day, the productivity isn't increased, uh, which it may well not, by the way, using this model, then we might have to rethink how we do things. Hmm. Do you think it's going to lead to a lot of um, employers who do want uh, their, their staff in the workplace, but the staff are saying no, that it will lead to them wondering whether they can get uh, cheaper services in other countries of the world because, in a sense, they're being forced to do, have employees who work remote? It's a distinct possibility, and I hope it doesn't come to that, because one of the things that saved Australia during the pandemic, uh, you as an economist will attest to this, perhaps, uh, is the fact that we had pretty close to full employment. And our unemployment rate didn't drop much below 5% throughout the last two years, right? Yeah. Uh, that's been an absolute saviour during the pandemic. Imagine the 91 recession, if you recollect it as well as I do, Peter, with 12% uh, unemployment at one point, uh, lots of people that can't find jobs. It was an uh, you know, low ability for access to credit. Businesses couldn't survive. It was uh, diabolical. I mean, uh, it took us three years to recover from the 91 recession.
Yeah, and there was no there's no internet to make people capable of either working at home or even creating their own businesses, which they've done nowadays. That's correct. Uh, I I hope that we will think hard about the employment. The other thing is it takes a lot to get a CBD to work. I mean, and a CBD is an animal with many parts to its body. So if you think of the retail and the CBD that uh, many of the ASX listed companies rely on, shopping centers, retail strips, uh, other items, museums, um, they all rely on their revenue on a conglomeration and a density of workers being there at the same time. So if you reduce that, you may actually find other problems stem from the lack of people being agglomerated into one place. Okay, um, before Christmas, I was fortunate enough to have lunch with a man who knows a little bit about property, Harry Triggerboff, which I'm sure <laughs> he, and, and I said, I, yeah, And I said to Harry, well, with the offices being vacated for the reasons that we're, we're talking about, workers not wanting to come back. What's the likelihood that many offices will be turned into residential uh, apartment blocks? And he said, well, I'd like it to happen. He said, but there's a lot of um, planning regulations and planning people that are in the way. Do you, mm. a, do you see that would be a good thing for, for example, Sydney or Melbourne, for the CBD to have a lot more residential uh, apartments replacing the offices that currently are becoming ghost offices. And secondly, do we need governments to, to jump on these uh, people in planning who are cre creating obstacles to that kind of innovation? Well, the first thing to say is that the obstacles are real because the zoning and planning systems are very difficult to change quickly. They're clunky. Mm. Uh, they require massive processes for radical change to turn an office building into a residential. That's first thing. Second thing is there are many commercial imperatives, Peter, that are a problem. And that is that if I've got an, I'm in, I'm in Governor Philip Tower, it's an A-class building, it's magnificent. So even if this were vacant at one point, which it isn't, uh, to convert it to residential would mean that you have to wait till the end of its economic life because simply destroying an asset that's still got a lot before the end of its economic life mm. cannot make a feasibility stack no matter what you do. Yeah. So all of these buildings that are halfway through their economic life or less will not change anyway. That It's impossible. The places where you would put residential and could be very successful is at the fringes of cities. All really big cities uh, that are successful have those. Now, what they will also be able to allow you to do is to change moderately low office rent, like in that kind of city fringe on the outskirts of Sydney CBD, sort of almost like a K and a half or two Ks out from the centre here. Yeah. They could be very successful conversions. They will also allow a lot of people to live within almost walking distance uh, to work. So that could be a possibility. And those buildings, a lot of them are at the end of their economic life and they're reaching that renewal kind of phase. Mm. But the problem is once you convert them to resi, because resi is a higher and better use, they will never ever go back to office. So should you grow Australia and Sydney into a 10 million, if you grow Sydney say into a 10 million person city and you suddenly need a bigger CBD, uh, it is kind of hard to see where the extra space will come from other than destroying existing buildings and going much taller. Hmm. 
But, so they're the challenge. Yeah, yeah. But, but do you think it would be a, a, a positive for a city like Sydney that is a big also tourism mecca as well to actually have mm. a lot more people living in the city? So, you know, in a sense, the, the yes. amenities required for the people living would be great for tourists yes. as well. Better restaurants. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, in fact, we're building more hotels in the CBD. That's very important uh, because it gives you your after hours life. I mean, after five o'clock on a Friday to nine o'clock on Monday, you don't want a ghost town in a world city like Sydney. Yeah. You don't want it to be a ghost town. You want the streets to be buzzing with activity. So that requires more residential to be nearby, hmm. better public transport access for people to come in. And people have to have things to do. They've got to be world-class restaurants, world-class museums. There's got to be stuff. So if you've got nothing to do in the city, why would you come? Yeah. So I see that there is an absolute imperative, as you are saying, to revitalize the CBD and residential will do that. So definitely in the right places, residential should be encouraged and Sydney CBD should be a lot bigger. By the way, I've advocated for many years that it's too short. It should be a lot taller. You should actually be able to put more residential and more commercial all in the one spot using the same space. Yeah. Uh, okay, the, the last big question for people who've listened to this interesting interview, but want to make money out of it as well, um, Shane. Uh, REITs, REITs, are they going to be under pressure for some time until we actually see how many workers we can get back in the CBD? I think so, uh, they will be, but it will subside. Uh, my father, rest his soul, used to say, the good will pass, the bad will pass too. Everything will pass. Mm. So my view is the pandemic was partly driven by a genuine health fear of people traveling to the city or being on public transport or being in an office with others. That will subside uh, very soon, if not sooner. Then, uh, then the idea of having offices occupied will become an important consideration for all companies, including ours. I mean, we like our workers to be together with us in the one space. Now, if that's not possible, then what you're saying will, if for whatever reason, I doubt that that's, that will be the case, but if it's not possible and it's not a convincing argument for employees who all want to kind of do uh, a hybrid model, then the additional space will definitely be a challenge for REITs because remember, they value their buildings based on income yeah. and that income requires rental yields and rental growth. Okay. So for the patient investor, would you think REITs are a buying opportunity now or is it still in a too hard basket for you? No, I would buy. I mean, who was it that once said you should buy when the, mar when the market says things are down and you should sell when the market yeah. says things are up. Yeah, I think Buffett, and, uh, Buffett said, uh, be greedy when other people are fearful. That's, that's, uh, uh, that's the right advice. Yeah. And he knows one or two things about investing. Yeah. But, uh, but I think uh, the market's in very good shape. The supply equation is still very, very tight for lots of, so if you wanted to build a brand new office building in the city of Sydney or Melbourne today, it's really hard to do hard to find the land, hard to get the approval. And uh, the building is the easiest part, actually. So um, so it's limited stock. So that tells me that long term is a very good investment. It's a good hold. And I certainly would be thinking about it as uh, a long term hold. And that means that if the assets are strong, 
uh, the REITs will be strong in the medium to long term. Shane, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Peter. And that's Dr. Shane Gaher. Now, I've taken the FN Arena survey by analysts who specialise in REITs and had a look at what they're saying about some of the, the high-flying companies on the stock exchange, which we call REITs, Real Estate Investment Trust. Now, Dexas, average gain, 13.9%, but the biggest one is 19% from Morgan Stanley. GPT, average gain is expected to be 12.9% over the year or so, um, but uh, Ormanet thinks it could be a 17% gain. Looking at uh, a famous one called Charter Hall Long Whale uh, REIT, it was uh, CLW8, a 4% gain is the average, but Morgan Stanley thinks a 14% gain is out there. And when it comes to Centuria's office um, um, uh, stock, which is COF, it's a ticker code, 11.9% is the average gain, and 16%, Morgan Stanley says, is a possibility for this particular company. Now, as you can see, they're all pretty good gains. The analysts effectively like REITs, but they are not really over-enthusiastic saying they in massive returns. I suspect over time these companies will find more supporters or buyers of these particular stocks. But right now, greed has a bit of competition from fear. The chart below of Dexas shows it was once a $13.90 stock and is now $10.70. Potentially, that is a 30% gain plus if these stocks eventually come back to where they used to be. And by the way, a company like Dexas pays about a 5% dividend, which is unfranked, still making a pretty interesting investment. And that's the show for this week. Thanks for joining us. Don't forget we're back on Monday. If you want to know more about the stocks that we think are worth buying or possibly selling, have a look at switzerreport.com.au. That's where all the information can be found. Thanks for joining us. See you on Monday.